You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Here are the aisles, the projectionist has Svicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolokowski. Yitzhak, it's been a long time. Um, we've passed the spooky season. So, and here we are into November, into the Gesundheit winter, into an Eretz They're already saying, of course, I was saying we're going to talk about, but I had an idea which we were talking about off pod. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, we don't try to do Jewish things here as much, but I want to talk about um, two and a half Jewish actors, actually three, uh, three actors who, who, who identified as Jewish. Um, one of them was not halakhically Jewish, uh, but the other two were, and all three of them really felt an affinity towards the Jewish people, maybe perhaps not in a way where um, you know, they were giving millions and millions of dollars to Israel uh, and things like that, like Eddie Cantor, who was raising money for the UJA uh, and others. But I think they all of them really felt uh, a sense of their Judaism, serious actors. The first one, of course, is Edward G. Robinson. Um, and rem- remind our, our listeners what the G stands for in G. Robinson. Yitzchak. Is, is the Goldberg, right? Right, yes. Goldenberg. Goldenberg. Right, so he, he, wanted to, he wanted to make sure that even though he was Edward G. Robinson, of course, Robinson is a pretty Jewish name as well. It's a, a lot of people, Rabinovich, a lot of Robinsons and Rabinovich, rabbi's sons. Um, have, was, that's my, my Shloyma, his English name is Solomon Joel Robinson, but that's from Mystery Science Theater, so. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. So again, we talk about uh, it's probably one of the scandals, really, that Edward G. Robinson, who I think, if you go uh, on the uh, if you go to the the page of Edward G. Robinson and you, you take a look and see, he has two hundred and fifty four films, movies, and television shows that he was in. That is massive, massive amount of public appearances being involved. Um, and really, you know, he, uh, I know he received an Oscar uh, posthumously in an honorary way, but he wasn't even nominated, I think, for all his incredible film appearances. Um, and again, there's, there's so many, um, it's hard to zero in on one. I think he was one of the great Jewish actors. Of course, he started off, uh, as we've talked about, in the Yiddish theater, um, he was he was clearly someone who um, was connected in his Yiddishkeit, and that was a, a a bridge for him to go into from New York to Hollywood. What's interesting, of course, I, I think he might have made a number of silent films. I'm sure he did, uh, but in that first era of the talkies, post 1929, 1930, 31, that that those first seven or eight years where you know they were getting their sea legs talkies the gangster film, and Edward G. Robinson didn't just play, you know, um, Rico, uh, you know, the obvious uh, Little Caesar, uh, Italian roles. He played, in many ways, a sympathetic role. Sometimes he played, um, you know, a guy who was hoping to break in with the gangsters, but wasn't. Uh, In other films, he played uh, like an undercover tough guy who was going to uh, like he was going to, in a way, uh, I think in, in a film that he made with Bogart in 38, where he was going to go, he played the, the role of an undercover cop. So he wasn't, many people think he was pigeonholed as the tough guy, but he actually, in his uh, career, even in the 30s, he was uh, using whatever creative control he could not to be pigeonholed and, and to break out. Uh, in the 40s, Although the film I wanted to talk about and highlight as I think, a, I don't know if it's an unforgotten a part of, of, of his, his film, Orifra, but in, in the 40s, uh, one of the things he did was allow himself to be sort of like a character actor. Um, he did, you know, he allowed himself to take uh, secondary parts in films, what we call supporting roles or smaller roles. And I think he was Tzafridin with that. He recognized his age. He recognized what was going on. He, he was a, a supporter of, of the Dor HaChadosh. Um, and, and he didn't mind doing that. You know, I, I don't know if he was a scene stealer in the films he was in, although many people will say that he stole a couple of scenes in, uh, 
in uh, the Ten Commandments, and I guess in Soil and Green, he was given, uh, you know, a, a real heart throbbing, you know, a heart wrenching scene as an old Jewish guy who was <laughs> facing extermination, so to speak. Uh, we've mentioned uh, his Emmy uh, nominated performance, Messiah Mott Street, where which I guess was a, was somewhat of a starring role, but he was really pretty comfortable in in in, in those roles that were given to him. Um, you know, I, he, he was, there was a film that I really liked a lot called The Cincinnati Kid, where he played a, uh, like one of the great poker players that Steve McQueen was going to try to go up against. And I think it was some sort of plot to sort of, um, to sort of rip him off in some sort of classic poker game in New Orleans. I don't remember all the details, but they're sort of like the, almost like the uh, Jackie Gleason role in The Hustler. So he was like the great guy that you're waiting for to come to come through. Um, but again, he really was a person who accepted his life, accepted his shortcomings, um, accepted the fact that you know he wasn't going to be a matinee idol. And I think he gave, I don't remember any film where he just, um, you know, just sort of like mailed it in. I think he really gave every film what he felt was the performance that he needed to do and, and, and dedicated himself to it. So it's, it's really a shame that Hollywood didn't really recognize what type of actor he was. Um, we talked about off pod, the fact that he seems to have married a Jew, especially in the second marriage, and he was buried in a Jewish cemetery um, and never denied the fact that he was connected to Judaism in any way, shape or form. Uh, the film I, I want to recommend from this Jewish icon um, that I think has somewhat been overlooked, and it's, I think it's in the public domain as well, and you can definitely see it no matter on YouTube, uh, which is a pretty good print of it, I think, is the, is the Red House, which I think is from 1947, I believe. Uh, it's a really a weird movie. Um, uh, Edward G. Robinson uh, plays a fellow who, along with his sister, sort of a weird relationship that he has, and his sister is played by Dame Judith Anderson. Uh, many of uh, our pod listeners probably know her from her classic role in Rebecca, where she plays Mrs. Danvers, who is this, this, this horrible, heavy housekeeper, heavy meaning she's the evil one who wants to sort of like, you know, make Joan Fontaine crazy. Um, so, it, what's, what's strange, of course, is that I think um, they are playing uh, in, a, in a sort of a California town, a California off the beaten track town, um, and they harbor some dark secret. They, are, they have adopted a young girl who uh, the film makes clear uh, whose parents have died, and uh, this brother and sister have raised this girl and she goes to school with all the other kids, but everyone considers her parents, quote unquote, very weird and strange people. And the dinette that, uh, played by Aline Roberts, um, I think was actually in a, 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 Alabama, a girl from Alabama with won a number of beauty contests, although in this film, uh, she is made up to be quite plain, although there's something um, innocent and I guess somewhat fetching about her. Um, she uh, convinces the erstwhile star, who I think got second billing in the film, is a fellow named Lon McAllister. Uh, Lon McAllister, um, when I was reading up on him on, in, the, in, the, in the page on this website, um, supposedly Hollywood had hopes for him to be the next young, fresh-faced uh, teenage star. Uh, and I, I, I can't deny that he shows a little bit of acting chops here. Uh, he's not anywhere as riveting as Edward G. Robinson is um, at all, but he's sort of like this young fellow who's brought onto the farm uh, because um, the, uh, uh, Pete, Edward G. Robinson, uh, is, is limping. He's been involved in some accident that happened when he was younger and he's got a wooden leg and therefore he's not able to uh, really walk properly and do all the work around the farm. And therefore uh, Lon McAllister playing Matt Storm uh, is brought onto the farm. And although they seem to be pleasant enough, 
uh, Pete and his sister named Judith Anderson. Um, it's clear there's something strange there because he's warned that he cannot go through the forest. He can't go near the red owls or something, even though that's the shortcut to get home. And they're screaming and they're shouting and there's something there that's something perhaps mysterious or there's ghosts there. Um, and it turns out that when Lon uh, McAllister, when Nate tries to go home and take that shortcut, uh, something happens. He's, he's scared. Uh, he hears the voices. He runs back. So you sort of get the idea that this, this film this red house has some sort of supernatural aspect to it. Um, and I think as the film develops, you see that it's much more a psychological drama than any sort of ghost story. And you realize that although outwardly, um, they seem to be very kind and wonderful people, this brother and sister, that really something is really deep and horrible that has happened in their past. And although you would say it's a very benign relationship that they're raising this little girl, uh, as the film continues, you see that, um, that uh, Pete, Edward G. Robinson's character, is acting stranger and stranger as uh, the boy who enters back into this scenario ends up dredging up some of the original pain and trauma that might have been connected to that red house it's all black and white so you never see the house as red as all yeah but uh, that's uh, my daughter said i don't get why why they have to mention the color of the house in the black and white movie <laughs> yeah I, I guess part of it is because there's blood and death connected to it because uh, it turns out that really um you know and it's really no big secret there's that that, that this fellow is has has done something terrible and uh, he's been trying to live his penance but he really hasn't in a way absorbed, it's still very much, uh, he's still very much caught in the catharsis of, of the past. Um, I have to mention also that there's a, um, another uh, element here. Uh, Nate has, uh, there's another girl who, who's tugging at his affections. In fact, when the film starts, he's not really the boyfriend of Meg. Um, he's really just a friend who's coming to make some extra money because his, his mother's general store uh, is out there in the middle of nowhere and not earning any money at all. Of, with a woman uh, who married someone else and he felt that she had married the wrong person and he kept trying to be kind to this married woman, although she was already married and therefore uh, uh, forbidden fruit to him. And uh, he kept his love for her, even though she was married and had a child. And that child, of course, you know, without giving too much away, is the girl who survived. And it seems as the film develops, you see that he starts, in a way, living in this fantasy, going back in the past, where he starts projecting upon, not the Julie London character, but the Aline Roberts character, who starts calling her uh, the name of, his, of her Jeannie. day. Jeannie, he calls her, yeah. What does he call her? Jeannie. Jeannie calls her the name of her of her dead mother because, you know, he starts, you know, getting those same feelings, even though he's supposed to be her father. So it really is quite weird. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, Edward G. Robinson actually, you know, formed a production company to make this film. Um, and, and really, you're really talking about a lot of damaged people here. Um, you know, the... Uh, you know, it, it's it, J Judith Anderson, uh, for some reason, has decided to protect her brother, who's a murderer, really. Uh, you know, he, he has actually killed, if you watch the film towards the end, you realize uh, that he has, uh, he has killed, um, not only did he end up killing uh, his rival, but it seems like he's also responsible for the death of the woman he loved, although he has sort of blanked that out in his mind. And the screams that sort of come from the house are really the screams within himself. Uh, what's also very weird about this film, and it, it also stars, I guess in some way, I don't know if it stars, but also you know, a typical hick type of guy who likes to hunt. And it seems like somehow uh, Pete has, 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 has acquired enough wealth that he could buy that whole piece of land, um, including where the red house is. And he wants to keep it sort of like as this, you know, as the sacred museum of, of, his, of his horrible 
memories. So he keeps Rory Calhoun there as sort of like the guard. And when uh, uh, when McAllister, you know, Nate uh, ventures too close, uh, you know, Rory Calhoun is there to, uh, to 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 smack him around with some rifle butt or to shoot at him. Um, and of course, you know, whenever you have a gun, you know, there's going to be some sort of terrible uh, occurrences that are going to are going to happen. And indeed, Rory Calhoun um, is ends up shooting someone that he shouldn't shoot. Strange film. I think Ever G. Robinson, um, you know, intimates a lot. He, he acts, and you can see that he's. Um, you can sort of believe that he is a shattered and uh, desperate and person who's never really, in a way, expiated uh, the demons. And he's sort of, in in a way part of him still wants to protect this girl who he has adopted as a daughter, finds himself drawn inexorably uh, towards the actions that, that, he, that, that he perpetrated. Um, and I think this film is really very powerful as far as that goes, that, that if you don't really, you, you can't cover up you know, the, the Avera, as we say, um, that if you've done something terrible, even though you, you, you try to sort of cover it up and do what you can, to make things better, um, if you don't really uh, own up and, and deal with things, and if you don't really pay the piper or, or, or expiate yourself, what you end up doing is whatever little torture you live in, it, it, it actually eats you up and destroys you. So you know, I, I think this film you know, does have a moral message um, and it does give Edward G. Robinson, I think, uh, quite, a, quite a little bit of a palette uh, you know, to show his acting chops. Um, I don't know if anybody else there really, you know, is in his league here. Uh, I think Dame Judith Anderson is, pro is, is pretty much wasted. Um, it's not that she can't do an American accent, but you know, you're, you're talking about someone who, you know, who, uh, you know, as Mrs. Danvers was the epitome of, you know, implied evil. And here, you know, she's sort of like, you know, a throwaway role here of someone who's sort of given up her life uh, for no reason. Um, a little bit of an exploration, I think, of of, of American youth after World War II. Uh, I think there's a little bit of that as well. Um, and, and, and because it's available, I, I think it's, I think it's worth your- Surprised by how adult it was for that era. It was, you know, it, it really- Right. The, the, crossed the, the, a lot of lines that you didn't expect in a movie at that time to cross. Right. Well, you can see that, you know, he, you know, here he is, basically his daughter, that he starts harboring, you know, these, these, these feelings for, these incestuous type feelings, because he's, he's in a way displacing uh, her with, you know, her, her mother, um, that, he's, that he has this unacquitted love for. Well, um, the other girl, he started, in the beginning of the movie, the, she, she, you know, she says, you know, uh, it's, uh, you can change into your bathing suit uh, when, when you get there. It'll be just you and me, you know, like it's also was uh, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in some forest area uh, in California. And it sort of has like almost like a, I'm going to say a, document, a documentary feel, but it doesn't feel like something that they made on the back lot. It doesn't feel like something that was, you know, just something that they patched together. Um, it, it's a strange film, and I think it's probably one of the stranger films uh, that Edward G. Robertson was connected to. Um, and it's sort of an indicator of where he was at that time of his life, you know, that he was going to play like a weird, threatening, sort of like, you know, strange guy. Um, uh, you know, and he definitely intimated a lot of, a, a lot of terror uh, in that film. You know, again, why is it the red? You know, he was much, he was much more scarier than the Red House itself. Um, I'll talk about is John Garfield. Now, you know, I, I would probably say, you know, on a, on a, from a modern perspective, um, in terms of what the modern definition of, of great acting, now, if you take Brando and, and James Dean and um, what we call the, the naturalist. Uh, style of acting, and we could throw Pacino and Dustin Hoffman in there as well. Uh, probably Garfield is much more uh, of that mold than Edward G. Robinson is. And I think if you know if there's been you know an acceptance by critics that you know that sort of Lee Strasberg a method of acting is what we call real acting from within, uh, not just necessarily putting on a part. I would say Garfield is probably the superior actor 
to to Edward G. Robinson. And on this platform, of course, we talked about a film that they both were in together, which was The Seawolf. And I mentioned in that film how Garfield was, was pretty much wasted. Um, and Edward G. Robinson, you know, you know I, as again, I thought that the problem with that film was that they were trying to model themselves and after the source material, which I didn't think they could really, uh, you know, fulfill as much as Edward G. Robinson had a, a noble attempt at. But Garfield, of course, not only the poster in uh, Ring Twice, Body and Soul, uh, there's so many uh, films where people are struck by Garfield's natural ability. Uh, he, he is riveting. And I would say, in some ways, again, even before the idea of Brando and, and others, uh, he was uh, not a handsome fellow, but he, he had a, a certain solid good looks um, and he was able to really to show a lot uh, in his face and his attitude and the way he moved his body. Um, he was something different. Um, he, he wasn't just, you know, he was not like a, you know, like it, he wasn't necessarily a, a comedic actor, uh, but you, know, you you felt for him. You felt that he was a real person, whether it was in the poster and rings twice or anything else where, you know, you sort of felt that this was a, a, someone you cared for. Not like a, a super nice guy like Henry Fonda, but someone who um, uh, you could see the contained rage, you can see the contained frustration. Um, and I think, uh, you know, when we talk about how old he was, you know, when he died, 39 years old, um, he wasn't obviously a star, uh, but, you know, if you, if you take a look again at the IMDb, uh, IMDb, uh, website, you'll see that he was, he'd been in 90 films. Um, uh, it's quite a bit. Um, I want to talk about the film, the last film that he made. Uh, he ran all the way. Um, uh, he played Jews, of course, uh, in, in other films. I think probably his most famous Jewish role was in a film that <laughs> I don't know if it really, uh, he was, I, I think, sort of a wasted part of it was, was the film Gentleman's Agreement, which um, you know, was, was lauded as this, you know, this wonderful film uh, that exposed the, uh, the evils of anti-Semitism where he plays Dave Goldman. And part of the reason why they wanted Garfield in that role was because um, Elia Kazan wanted to have someone who uh, you could relate to, someone who was uh, a great, good American GI. And how could anybody, you know, harbor hatred or animosity towards someone who was such a good American soldier like John Garfield was in that film. But he didn't really have to act too much in that film other than getting a little bit upset uh, when people indicated that he was a Jew. Um, the film I'm talking about though, the last film he made before he died, I think he died of a heart attack, uh, is he ran all the way. And this is a pretty strange film. Um, Garfield, once again, doesn't necessarily play uh, a character that you have so much sympathy for, but you understand he is a is a um, you know he's a, a, a sort of a a, a sort of a, a lunkhead, <laughs> a, a follower who really, as you can see throughout the film, was missing love. You know his mom seems to have been uh, was played by uh, Gladys George, I think, who was an old. Uh, Hollywood actress, even in the silent era. I think she was a glamour girl actress. Uh, and in this film, you can see she plays like a sort of a washed up whore or something like that, who was raising this boy who's still living at home and she hates him and he doesn't really believe anybody can love him or anything care for him. And, you know, he happens to be a little tough guy and he's sort of pushed around by his friend played by Norman Lloyd. Uh, you know, Norman Lloyd, of course, was a uh, was someone who worked together with Hitch um, on, um, I think was actually part of the Mercury Theater with Orson Welles as well. But he had been with Hitch uh, on the television show on the Alfred Hitchcock uh, Presents. And um, because he had actually acted in, in one of Hitch's uh, films in the 40s called um, Saboteur. And you might remember that uh, Lloyd was the one who uh, Robert Cummings ends up uh, encountering on the Empire, the uh, Statue of Liberty. Uh, Norman had also had, I think, probably the most um, impressive roles uh, in his life was as uh, in St. Elsewhere, 
where uh, he plays the kindly uh, doctor um, who, uh, Dr. Oshlander, uh, who's dying of cancer. Uh, but anyway, Norman Lloyd is uh, John Garfield's buddy who has actually planned this holdup of some, uh, you know, I guess it's some sort of uh, robbery of some place where, uh, you know, the, the pension money or the payout money is being is being uh, is being placed, and you know, Garfield, uh, you know, ends up shooting uh, his way out and shooting a policeman, and therefore he ends up. Uh, being a wanted fugitive and uh, although his buddy was Norman Lloyd was caught and ends up uh, not surprisingly snitching on him uh, he ends up running away and I'm not sure exactly if, if, the, if the film is meant to take place in New York or not I, I don't know uh, it seems like it is but he ends up going in order to hide uh, at sort of like this this giant uh, swimming area it's like a swimming area where people go to uh you know, to be part of this big communal swimming pool and i guess it, i guess it has some sort of like a ride on it as well uh, there seems to be it seems to be adjacent to some sort of amusement park and uh he thinks this is a place where he can get lost in the crowd uh it's a place where he can hide the money in some sort of locker um and it's there uh that he meets in the swimming pool uh, Shelley Winters, and of course Shelley Winters, uh, a, a always, <laughs> especially in those early years, uh, always an arresting presence. And Shelley Winters is the is this girl who uh, finds herself meeting this this thug, this fellow who has shot a cop, who has robbed uh, you know, this this pension fund, or whatever it was that he was robbed his payroll. And um, he's sort of like, in a way, using her, but in a way attracted to her. Um, and he finds himself, because he's paranoid that the police are looking for him or whatever, he figures he can use her as a way to sort of like walk through the streets, because in his paranoid mind, he thinks the police already know where he is or after him. And he ends up going into uh, Shelley Winters' life. Uh, now she is the older, she's the oldest sister. She has a little cute as a button brother and she has a wonderful uh, mother and father that she's living with. And uh, you know, in this film, the, uh, her dad is played by the great character actor Wallace Ford, who of course, as you know, Yitzhak is the brother of John Ford. John Ford's brother, the great director. Is is Wally Ford, um, uh, some other character actress, Selena Royal, plays her mother, and basically this is sort of like uh, 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 where uh, Garfield, playing this bum, meets a normal family, a family, a loving family, family he doesn't have. His mother is this, as we said before, this horrid harridan, and here he is uh, being brought into a family. Um, where there is love, there is concern, uh, where they're able to perhaps at least um, in a way um, support each other despite the fact that they live in somewhat of, of, a, of a, in somewhat of a state of uh, under the poverty level. Uh, her dad uh, works not, you know, not for a newspaper, but he works in the press room, not in the, in the, in the, in the room where they actually print the paper itself. And I think his mom, you know, works as a seamstress or something and does, does some work at home. Um, she herself, Shelly, who plays Peg, uh, works in some bakery where she's working on the assembly line, sort of, um, and no one has any sort of uh, glamorous job, but at least they're happy with what they're doing and they're supportive of each other. Um, and in, into this world comes um, Garfield, you know, as Nick. And there's a, a, a chemistry between uh, Shelley Winter's character and Garfield. Um, and you could see that there probably was something really maybe even on, off screen between them. Um, you know, Shelley Winter's, uh, you know, 
I think almost in every film she's in before, I mean, she quickly went and played mothers, you know, by the time 1960 came about, you know, about 11 years later, she was no longer the femme, you know, she was no longer, you know, the woman that you wanted to zero in on. She ended up playing the mom, you know, as she played in Lolita and in A Patch of Blue and many other films. And then famously, of course, Garfield does such a great job playing a, a low life and a person of, of very low intelligence, but of extreme emotional neediness. And he's able to go really from one scene to the other, from, you know, from needing her and really caring about her or manipulating her. And, and, and the dynamic between her and, you know, it's, is Shelley Winters really playing him or is Shelley Winters really, has she become really uh, caught up with this terrible person, this person who uh, is, is a murderer and someone who, you know, is just planning some sort of life of escape and to live as a desperado somewhere outside of normal society. Uh, and the film does, I think, I think does a good job in, in seeing what the allure of such a character is, despite, you know, uh, you know, all his negative qualities. So, you know, again, it's, a, it's, it's, it really is uh, a film where you believe, you don't really believe he's acting. You know, and again, here I would contrast him once again to Edward G. Robinson, that, oh, here's Edward G. Robinson, you know, putting on the role of a, of a, you know, of a person who's guilty and tortured. Again, Garfield is that character. He really is the character who he's playing, you know, in, in this piece. Um, I think James Wong Howe, uh, I believe, was a cinematographer, and I think he does a, you know, his usual really, you know, really incredible job in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of how he shoots this film. And, um, you know, I think the, uh, you know, it, it really is a beautifully done film. You have a, a sense of really, of cinema verite. Uh, you know, the, the scenes in the, in the swimming pool, um, you know, are really ring very true. Um, and, and, and just shooting them from uh, the angles that he did gives you a sense of the paranoia uh, that's going on in, Garfield's mind. Um, and you really feel sorry for the fellow that uh, he hasn't been loved. And even though um, you, know, you also get, there's a lot of pathos generated also by uh, Shelley Winter's father, you know, the Peg's father, who can't believe that his little girl is being taken away. Um, uh, the, there's a little brother I mentioned before, uh, played by Robert Hyatt, um, who uh, although initially seems to be excited by the fact that there's this tough guy in the house, uh, realizes that he's really a cruel person and, you know, wants to try to attack him himself. Um, you know, the, there's been other films, I think The Desperate Hours is a very similar film where Humphrey Bogart uh, plays uh, and his two, uh, his two henchmen uh, play a, an escape team of criminals who end up uh, holding a whole family hostage. So it's been, it, it was done afterwards and maybe before, uh, but I think as a character study, um, I really think Garfield's performance here really outshines what Bogart did in The Desperate Hours. And, and again, it's really his swan song, the last film he made. Um, and it's, it, to me, if you want to get a sense of what Garfield's power as an actor is, I think this is, it's the last thing he made. And I don't know if it's the best thing he made, but I think it's definitely an interesting something to think about. Uh, if, and of course, Paul Newman is, is in some ways much bigger than Garfield and Robinson, you know, a sex symbol, a superstar. Everybody wants to know who he is. Everyone wants to know about his private life. Um, he's now recently in the news because of uh, not only the HBO uh, multi-part documentary uh, done, you know, done by Ethan Hawke, but also really more importantly because of discovery of the transcripts of what was supposed to be an autobiography uh, that he actually burnt, uh, but has been rediscovered. Uh, so this has been published recently. People are seeing about, you know, about how Paul Newman uh, really didn't believe he was much of an actor. He didn't really believe so much in himself. Uh, he had a lot of doubts. Uh, he didn't think he was great. He thought he was just very ordinary. And in many ways, he was haunted by uh, the fact that you know, he was able to step in when James Dean died. Uh, he took the part of Rocky Graziano and somebody up there loves me, somebody that likes me, which is supposed to be James Dean's part. Um, he never saw himself as a great actor. 
um, and he blamed himself in many ways for uh, the sort of overdose suicide of his son. Um, and of course, he ended up creating uh, the, re the rehab center. Um, that we all know, of course, about Newman's own, the dressing company and the salad dressing company and the whatever else they make by Newman's own and the monies that were going to be going uh, to support real foundations of, of charity. Um, and people know, of course, about Newman's relationship with Joanne Woodward, but again, what's now being brought to the forefront again is that that was a, an adulterous relationship to start out with. Uh, despite the fact that Joanne Woodward ended up, in a sense, adopting uh, Newman's kids from his previous marriage and raising them uh, in many ways to the detriment of her own career. Although, you know, and she, of course, was seen as this incredible actress in, in Three Faces of Eve and many other films where you know, she was considered like the pinnacle of, uh, of a great actress. And Newman, of course, um, you know, pushed his way through through the 50s. And really in the 60s, he really broke out. And it was from in, in that period from, I guess, um, you know, from the early 60s, maybe even from the film where he plays the Jew, uh, I think in 1961's um, Exodus, where he plays Uri ben Kanan. Uh, I mentioned to you off pod that Preminger wanted an actor that, that was Jewish, but, felt, but didn't look Jewish. And uh, Newman always has, uh, felt that he was a Jew. I actually saw Paul Newman when I was in Yeshiva. Uh, he boarding goods store in Cleveland, and maybe even a couple of them. And from Shaker Heights, which of course is a suburb of Cleveland. Um, and uh, he had a, a nephew that was in yeshiva. And I remember when Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward came to Nair Yisrael, that was a very exciting moment because you know I saw them walking through the dormitory and I said, what is that? That's Paul Newman that's walking through. Paul Newman is walking in the halls of Nair Yisrael. Like, you know, like that was something that was quite, quite, quite unbelievable to see that happening. Um, along with Joanne Woodward, they both were there, like walking through the hallway. Um, he considered himself a Jew because he felt, maybe a part of it was, was, was the part of him that, that, that considered himself a, you know, less than everybody else. Now, he liked the fact that he had to you know, fight for things. Um, and, and that way he you know, considered himself more a Jew than anything else. Um, I mean, you know, Paul Newman, uh, uh, so many people were considered as the pinnacle of, of, of male sensuality and, and things. Um, I'd like to suggest a film I think many people know from Paul Newman. It's not an unknown film. It might be, in a way, the breakout film from Paul Newman. But I think it's a film that has a tremendous moral center, even though most people, Yitzchak, really uh, went the opposite with the film. Now, in both of the films I've mentioned so far, you know, Garfield and Edward Robinson's character, they were meant to sort of be grotesques that you weren't supposed to really like and under, you're supposed to understand their weakness. I think here was a film that was made by a Jewish director, Marty Ritt, uh, and it was called HUD. Uh, it was based on uh, a, uh, a novel by Larry McMurtry, who you know, made a career of writing books about Texas, as you know, and they were turned into very successful films and TV miniseries, like The Last Picture Show, which we talked about on this platform uh, when we talked about Peter Bogdanovich. And uh, HUD, uh, which was really in the novel uh, that Larry McMurtry wrote, was more about, uh, uh, you know, HUD was a ancillary character. It was more about HUD's nephew and a coming of age story. Um, and that character in the film is played by Brandon D. Wild, you might remember, uh, was the boy who screams out for Shane, come back Shane. Paul Newman plays his uncle, who is basically a good-for-nothing rancher um, the, and is hated by his father. Um, the, you know, the, the father is played by Melvin Douglas. Now, Melvin Douglas was not never the Paul Newman of Hollywood, but he was considered a pretty handsome, dashing, leading man. Um, and, and so many films like Ninochka and others. Um, and very much the 1930s look of, of urbane um, uh, you know, understanding. Um, however, in, um, in this film, 
He plays a old Texas rancher who still has morals and ideals. Uh, Melvin Douglas won the Oscar uh, for this role. Um, the fourth character uh, in this tableau is Patricia Neal. And of course, you know Patricia Neal, so famous from uh, a film that we've talked about on this platform, which is The Day the Earth Stood Still, right? You remember her, she, I believe. Patricia Neal is the woman who is threatened by the robot monster, correct? She's, she's the main actress in that. There was, there was another science fiction movie that she was in that wasn't as good. I think a British one, but... Uh... but you know, Patricia Neal uh, won an Oscar here in this film. Um, the, the character that Larry McMurtry wrote in the novel about this family is actually a Black character. Uh, Marty Ritt didn't believe Hollywood would accept a Black character here because in the film, there's an amorous scene and an attempted rape, actually, by HUD of the housekeeper. Um, and therefore, um, the, the screenwriter decided, and Marty Ritt, director, to actually have a white actress. Um, Pauline Kael, I think, said that she plays it like a Negro, though, with sort of like the, you know, the Negro's understanding of, of the world-weary understanding of the world. So these four characters together um, are part of the, of the sort of modern Texas world, the world that the last picture show also, in a way, was an elegy for. And what happens in the film, the, the, the plot of the film is, is that um, the cattle are getting, uh, seemingly, are getting hoof-to-mouth disease. And what's going to happen is that if the government testing turns out that they're going to, the rancher played by Melvin Douglas is going to have to lose all his cattle because that is the moral and right thing that has to be done in order that an epidemic shouldn't spread of open mouth disease to all the cattle. Which would mean that this old fellow who has struggled all his life now, especially in this modern era, to be able to be a rancher of integrity is now going to lose everything. But as the, the, the film develops, as, as you can see what's happening, you, you realize that um, similar to the Garfield character and he ran all the way, Hud has never been loved too much. His mother seems to have died very young. And along with his older brother, who of course is the father of the Brandon the Wild character, um, uh, that was the only person he really felt something for in a real giving way. And it sounds like on some drunken uh, joyride uh, with seemingly it might've been Hud's fault, uh, his brother dies. And Hud is sure that's the reason why his father hates him. And, um, you know, uh, and he hates himself in some way, but instead of living in the same guilt the way the Edward G. Robinson character in The Red House lives, Hud basically says, well, who cares? There is, it's almost like Ace of uh, saying, okay, there is no other world to come. I'll just live the best way I can. You just got to take advantage. And you take advantage of every married woman. And the film you know, shows you that Hud is a, is a serial philanderer who fools around with, 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 with all the married women. He's a liar who only cares about extricating himself. He does have a little bit of, 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 of love and concern for his nephew, but not in any way that he wants to really protect him from becoming, to becoming a good person. He encourages you know, one night to get drunk with him and to, and to do stuff. All of this makes HUD a pretty despicable human being. And some people say this is the first film that actually not, doesn't just have a, a bad guy as a, um, as a morality image of what not to be like. HUD is considered the first anti-hero. And many people really felt that, you know, he, this is the, you know, that this is what the 1960s ushered in was people just like him. Uh, people who didn't really have much of a moral conscience. Um, uh, you know, there are, there are times in the film, even where he shows some sort of pathos and concern for his father, but there's other places where it seems like he's going to get his father put away, he's going to get his father committed, um, he doesn't really care if his father dies, although when his father does seem to be um, in a state of dying, he does seem to indicate that he cares a little bit uh, 
you know, telling them that they should call for an ambulance. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's just perfunctory or real. Um, uh, it, it, it is a film that how the producers had to fight the studio because they wanted HUD to get some sort of comeuppance. Um, you know, similar to the two films that I mentioned before, where these uh, damaged people, um, although you know they are they are they are stark and riveting while they're on screen, uh, Hollywood makes sure that Energy Robinson, spoiler alert, dies, <laughs> as well as um, Garfield, and you know Nick Roby dies. Um, HUD does not die, and HUD doesn't get arrested, and HUD doesn't lose anything. Um, you know, maybe, you know, it's true, all the cattle have to be shot, and that's a pretty, <laughs> you know, the scene was done with, you know, sort of Wong again, James Wong Howe was the cinematographer, and uh, I, I think there's a whole a paragraph on the Wikipedia page about how he photographed this film in a way uh, to accentuate the characterizations in it, um, and, and, and how the cat, you know, obviously none of the cattle were shot, but HUD, you know, you know, he's going to go on. Um, and you can see as everybody leaves him, you know, his, his father dies, it's a spoiler alert. Um, Patricia Neal, who plays the housekeeper that when he was drunk, he tries to rape, uh, also leaves town. Uh, she tells him that if he didn't try to rape her, they probably would have, you know, gotten together romantically anyway. Uh, but she can't stay after he has done such a, you know, a horrible thing. And uh, even his nephew, uh, who had who had idolized him and wanted to be like him, realizes, you know, his grandfather's message. And um, you know, when Hud is there in the in the house, the the, the closing scene of the film, you know, he just shuts the, you know, he just not only does he shut the door. But he pulls the shade down and says, look, you think I care? You know, look, I'm going to be who I am. And I think in many ways, that's really the difference between these three films. You know, you have, you know, you have the 1940s and 1950s. There were still, you know, Hollywood was still ready with that moral code. I think, you know, in HUD, you, you know, you have a character who doesn't have any of the, the, the qualms of, you know, Garfield and, you know, he ran all the way or Energy Robinson, the Red House. He's... You know, particularly happy. There are moments where Melvin Douglas is able to get under his skin and talk, tell him how he has no moral, uh, he has no morality, he doesn't care about anybody, and that he is he has no soul. Um, and for a moment, you know, it, it sort of in a way sort of strikes him, but he clearly is able to absorb that and he's able to, to move forward. And, and <laughs> In, 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 in sort of a, sort of a powerful performance here by Paul Newman, who you know, I, I, I think he might have been nominated for the Oscar for, but he obviously did not win. But the other two were. So I would say these three films and these three Jewish actors in it um, represent a pretty great trifecta. If you you know if you want to get a sense of it, was a, a was a director who was a tremendous social conscious. Of course, I'm sure you know who he is. Uh, he did a lot of films. Um, including, by the way, a film the year after he made HUD, he actually paired Edward G. Robinson and Paul Newman together in a remake of Rashomon. And I, I don't know if you know about that. Of course, you know Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon, right? You know what that, that is, of course, um, which is you know, the tale of, of, a, of, you know, of someone's death from many different perspectives. Um, uh, Marty Ritt remade it and with Paul Newman again, playing sort of the rascal and the bum and with Edward G. Robinson also as one of the, the stars that was actually the app was called Outrage in 1964. So you can actually see both of these guys together. Um, you never, you're not going to see the three of them together. I don't think that was possible. Newman really wasn't making films by the time Garfield had died. But um, yeah, these three Jews, I think, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they're making a Muslim and a little man somewhere. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, the fact that we're talking about him here today, you know, it could be that Smoyer or some sort of Swiss for that. We were talking off pod about the fact that, you know, Robinson and Cagney were like these two, the two powerhouses of Warner Brothers, uh, and they only were together really in one film, um, in Smart Money, which was a film I actually saw 
I, I forgot that when I was talking to you earlier today, um, where, you know, uh, again, it's one of these films where uh, you sort of feel you have Rahmanas for Edward G. Robinson because he, he gets beaten up and he loses and, you know, he, he's, he's sort of like a schmo. Um, and his best friend who is like supporting him and protecting him is Cagney. Um, so that was the only time they were ever together, 1931. Throughout, you know, they both had you know pretty long careers in Hollywood. And I guess there was sort of like the fact that you can't put these two guys in the same movie. <laughs> they sort of like cancel each other out, uh, not, which was was different between you know people saw thought similarly about you know, Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, but they were actually in I think six or seven films together. Um, but there was this sense that you know, yeah, Hollywood has this idea of archetypes. And I think that's like they, right? Um, it's cute, you know, we talk about, you know, we, you know, a similar thing would be Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. It's like, they're sort of like, are they the same guy, right? You know, the same role that would be up for Steve McQueen, you, you get Paul Newman, like, like in the Sand Pebbles or Papillon, you can see Paul Newman playing those roles uh, just, as, just as easily. Uh, the Great Escape, I mean, all, I did, blob, but, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think Paul Newman could have done the blob. You don't think he could have done the blob? Could be, but again, they're, they're sort of like almost the same person. Um, in the in the one film where they were together, uh, which was the um, uh, the Towering Inferno, uh, yeah, they they hassled back and forth about it how they were going to be because those are the first two names you see as the film opens up. So Steve McQueen's name is technically first reading left to right, but Paul Newman's name is higher. That's what they came up with. So this was the pshara they came up with between the, you know, Newman and McQueen, uh, for sure. That's what I did, my friends. So on this uh, triple feature, so to speak, we'll catch you hopefully soon with a lot of less breaks in between. Okay, thanks, thanks for being a great listener today. And hopefully next time you'll, you, you'll, you'll, you'll come with a whole uh, assorted bag of goodies uh, that we'll talk yeah. about as we get into winter. Be well. Take care. You too. Thank you. Good night. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 